Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. If there's a single political idea that we've all grown up with over the past 40-odd years, it's that competition is good. It promotes efficiency. It generates new ideas and better ways of thinking. It's the invisible hand that makes everything work. Successive governments at home and abroad have tried to introduce competition everywhere, from telecommunications to utilities to railways to TV production, because it brings out the best use of resources and the best use of talent for the best outcome. Or does it? My guest today has just published a book that does exactly what it says on the tin. It's called Competition is Killing Us, How Big Business is Harming Our Society and Planet and What to Do About It. And she's far from your average anti-capitalist chaining themselves to a railing near you. Michelle Maher is a former competition lawyer and an expert in corporate governance who's worked for the Office of Fair Trading in the UK and the Federal Trade Commission in the US. Market regulation is failing, she says, and we need a whole new way of looking at it. Hello, Michelle. Welcome to The Bunker. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for having me on. So how does a competition lawyer and markets regulator come to the conclusion that competition doesn't work? It's a good uh, question, and um, it's been quite a, quite a journey. I mean, I will admit, probably up front, because it will um, give people some context, that I was, in fact, a bit of a teenage conservative Um I was a huge fan of Maggie Thatcher. Um, my sister still calls me Thatch sometimes when she wants to wind me up. <laughs> um, uh, you know, at one point, Atlas Shrugged was my favorite book. I mean, it's all very kind of embarrassing now. I mean, I, I did it from a kind of place of, of idealism. I really bought into that idea, this idea that um, competition is best for us. And, and if we have uh, markets that are free and competitive, then lots of kind of good things will happen. And so I kind of really followed that idea um, into working in the city as a competition lawyer helping big corporates and um, get their mergers approved and I genuinely believed I was kind of working within the system that was working for the benefit of consumers and you know what what better way to use my legal skills and the real light bulb moment um, came for me when I was working on this particular deal and um, I write about it in the book it was a fizzy drinks merger. So it was the merger between Britvic, who made Tango, um, and um, AG Bar, the company that makes Iron Brew. You know, up there I was kind of working all night on this deal. And suddenly it kind of really hit me that the real world impacts of this deal. So, of course, the system is there to make sure that um, prices stay as low as possible for consumers. But is that what we really want for fizzy drinks? Do we want those products to be as cheap as possible? And I started to kind of see the ramifications of what I was working on and that I was really part of it. Um, and that was the start of a journey for me in questioning the role of competition in the economy. From a basic watching of the evening news, it's hard to argue that competition is fixing all of our problems right now. In fact, it seems to be creating the most pressing of them, which is climate change. One of the things that you talk about in the book, which I'd never really been able to kind of focus my mind on, but you make it very clear, is the notion of externalities, where companies are able to offload costs of what they do onto the government, onto local government, onto national government, onto the planet. Can you explain a little bit exactly what are externalities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is something that kind of baffles quite a lot of people that we can have this kind of system that is supposedly out there kind of serving the interests of customers and consumers the worldwide. And yet there are so many harms. And so this this is the core question I try to deal with in my book. I tackle um, this question of why does capitalism concentrate wealth and power into so few hands, but spread those harms that you describe kind of so widely. So if we think about how companies compete, um, they are beholden 
beholden to this idea that companies and directors should be maximizing the returns to their shareholders. Now, there's one great way to do that, which is by producing products that people like, um, innovative new products that serve some particular function, and then sell those products at a reasonable price. But that's just one way of making of maximizing profits, and it's not necessarily the most popular. Um, another way is to gain power in the market, to essentially attempt to kind of monopolize the market, uh, corner a market, and gain kind of power and leverage over your consumers, over your suppliers. That means you can um, charge your consumers a higher price, and you can um, reduce what you pay to your workers and also to your suppliers. And then the other way is what you describe, externalities, shifting the costs of your business onto society. When I go out and buy a litre of petrol um, from ultimately, you know, an oil company, that transaction, however much that um, that oil costs me, doesn't include the costs to society, to the environment of kind of cleaning up the carbon that is then emitted when I burn that um, that fossil fuel. And if we think about what companies are motivated to do, there's a lot of evidence to show that the um, fossil fuel companies were well aware of the harms of, um, of kind of man-made um, climate change and of burning fossil fuels for decades before they kind of started to slowly admit it. And you might even argue, or they might even argue, that they were under an obligation not to reveal it because their duty is to maximize profits for shareholders and it wouldn't have been in shareholders' best interest to reveal that information. But we can also see these kind of externalities, not just in the environmental case, I think that's the kind of sometimes the most concrete, but there's also these other kind of social social harms. So if we think about a company like Uber that has gone out of its way fighting in the courts around the world to make sure that its drivers are categorized as independent workers, as self-employed, and so that they don't have to bear the responsibilities of being an employer, the kind of social safety net that an employer usually provides well, the public has to provide that then. The state has to step in and provide the, that social safety net. So there are all these kind of different ways that when, you know, I order an Uber, what I pay for that ride doesn't include those costs of having to pick up for the fact that, you know, we've got people who are essentially working in incredibly precarious work, the kind of mental stress, health stress that comes with that, and the kind of uh, reality of, of precarious unemployment, um, sorry, precarious employment, but I suppose you could call it precarious unemployment um, that, that many people are having to kind of work under. We tend to see that the idea of competition is like a fixed law of the economy, that it's, you know, it's a it's a law of nature, it's gravity, we don't even question it. And we also, you know, see the bad kind of counterexample of command economies, which have, you know, historically failed, all making competition just look like an iron law of the universe. How did the competition paradigm come to dominate economics? Well, the idea really stems from um, a particular school of thought, the Chicago School of Economics um, and kind of neoliberalism, as it's often um, known as, which really tried to kind of sell the benefits of competition and of free markets and really hide all of the potential um, harms. So if we take something like this idea of monopolies, now, instinctively we know a monopoly is bad, but somehow under the wizardry of um, of neoliberal economics, a monopoly becomes good. Um, a monopoly is a company that has lots of resources at its disposal and therefore it can innovate. It can, and you know, that's the kind of narrative we get around the tech companies that Google is incredibly innovative um, and nobody wants to kind of 
um, attack that and and somehow reduce their incentives um, to compete um, in this in that way. But really, that competition is a complete illusion. I think that. As you say, the idea of competition has become so pervasive. But what we don't understand when we compare um, what we currently have, the supposed free market capitalism, to that kind of command and control um, centralized system, is that effectively we have centralization now, except that it's in the hands of private companies. So we have a Google that can effectively regulate the entire online world. It's centralized, but it's not under democratic control. So we are not in a kind of free market market system, really. Um, It turns out that our markets are incredibly concentrated. So some recent um, studies have shown that 75% of US markets are more concentrated now than they were 20 years ago. Or another um, kind of uh, figure that constantly astounds me is that 82% of US stock market value in 2015 came from monopoly wealth of the tech sector. So that's not companies out there producing stuff that we all want and um, getting their their deserved reward. That's companies that are essentially milking the market from the fact that customers have nowhere else to go. So the Amazon factor in that it looks like an incredibly great deal for a while, and then you realize there's literally nowhere else to buy from. Exactly. And, you know, that's what's so laughable about the way that um, competition law has come to view um, markets and competition, because we end up arguing over market shares and try to establish is Amazon a monopoly. Um, you know, a lay- to a layperson, it's completely obvious. But at a recent um congressional hearing, Jeff Bezos said with a completely straight face that um, Amazon had something like a 1% or 3% um, market share in the global market for all retail, as if he competes with, you know, um, everything from your local deli to your, um, you know, local petrol station, which he probably wants to compete with eventually. But the point is that when you kind of throw markets open so widely, it can make a company like Amazon seem like it's, oh, it's only, it's only a small company. But when everybody else can see um, that it that it isn't. So there's the idea of neoliberalism, which I think has definitely captured um, the way that we do economic policy, but it has had a huge impact on this niche area of law, um, competition law, which people you know probably don't know a lot about, and they might be learning a bit more about it um, with the kind of Brexit negotiations and all this discussion of state aid and the level playing field of Europe. But I think that it's it's something that we should really be paying attention to because the laws are there, but they're not being used to control corporate power as they should be. When you talk about regulating companies or breaking up large companies or democratic control of companies. A lot of people will throw up their hands and say, hang on a minute, this is command economy, governments um, taking control of business. Do you think that this thinking is now reaching out into other parts of the political spectrum? Because, you know, you, what you don't talk about anywhere in your book is the idea of mass nationalizations in the in the old-fashioned mm. kind of state control money. You talk about a much more complicated, complex and uh, systemic thing, which I believe you call stakeholder antitrust. Yeah, so I think that um, what's interesting is that this idea that monopolies should not be able to distort markets and the economy and society is really an accepted idea across the political spectrum. And when I'm talking about um, stakeholder antitrust or stakeholder control and influence over the economy, I'm really just talking about fair competition under a capitalist system. So 
I don't kind of break it down in this way in the book, although I'm increasingly doing so now um, when I'm talking about it. But I can think you can think of the solutions that I propose under three uh, brackets. And one is that we should be dispersing power. The other is that we should be democratizing power. And the other is that we should be dissolving it. And when I talk about dispersing, I'm talking about using all of the tools that we as kind of democratic citizens um, you know, should have control over the balance of power between powerful um, private companies and the rest of the state. We should be maintaining that balance, and we do that by using um, antitrust laws, by using uh, co corporate law, tax, securities law, all these different tools that we have to make sure that companies aren't able to essentially evade and um, kind of avoid being regulated. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is democratize. So um, by that, I'm talking about stakeholder representation on boards and some of those things, which which are typically um, seen as kind of lefty solutions. But another is we should be allowing um, countervailing power. We should be allowing smaller groups of you know independent small businesses. Entrepreneurialism will only survive if we allow um, businesses to essentially cooperate so that they can compete with the likes of Amazon. Um, if we take an example, um, you know, the European Commission is currently looking at um, its rules over, um, over cooperation between small businesses. Why is it doing that? It's doing that because currently delivery drivers wouldn't be able to collectively bargain with their effective employer at Deliveroo because they would be an illegal cartel because they've been framed as if they are these independent businesses. So we need to take a look at some of these aspects of our law um, that are essentially stopping um, proper competition from taking place. And then the final thing that I talk about is, is dissolving companies. So that's essentially taking this principle of the perpetual existence of a company, this assumption that companies should just be allowed to exist um, and they get limited liability and um, that's kind of it really for their, for their interaction with the state. What I'm arguing is that if a company repeatedly breaches the public interest, there should be a point at which you can say, you no longer have a right to exist. You don't serve any useful purpose in society and you shouldn't get those benefits of limited liability or you know, uh, relief on corporate tax or, or whatever it is. And I think that although you know, some people might say, you know, how would that power be used? This is actually a power that already exists under a niche provision of insolvency law. Um, the Secretary of State for Business already has the power to petition the courts for the winding up of companies in the public interest. But also, I don't think we would even need to use it that much. Just the mere fact that it could be exercised would suddenly um, you know, concentrate the minds of executives everywhere to know that they can't just go around you know, polluting water and then, um, and then paying for the cleanup like DuPont did in, in that other film. It was dramatized in the kind of Dark Waters film, the, the poisoning of water in West Virginia by DuPont. And then they paid kind of uh, millions, millions of, um, of dollars in payouts. But that's all just the cost of doing business for a company like DuPont. It, it won't actually make them change, change their behavior. But if you could say, we're not going to let you exist if you keep doing that, um, then they might kind of change, change how they operate. That is the kind of thing, though, I mean, if, if you raise the prospect of businesses being shut down by the government for failure to fulfill certain obligations, that is, that's going to terrify a lot of people. Isn't it a kind of a an abrogation of the right to start a company and run it any way that you want, you know, within the law? 
Well, it's interesting because that was the original model for, for this novel um, uh, creation of, of the corporation. So when um, corporations originally were developed, um, if you think of you know the East India Company as one of the world's first multinational corporations, the East India Company had to get a, a royal decree and later on um, companies needed to get acts of parliament in order to exist. And it came with this conditionality. You got this monopoly, um, this this right to um, protect the um, interests of, of the company and take whatever um, exclusive licenses that came with that. But it came with responsibilities to kind of fulfill whatever public duty had been uh, bestowed on to you um, and not to abuse your power. And if you did abuse the power, then your license would be revoked. We obviously don't have that system now, and partly because it was a highly nepotistic system where you had to essentially be friends with um, whoever in parliament in order to get your company created. So we have this idea of general incorporation, which means that anyone can go start a company, and it was meant to be a democratizing force. That was the original motivation of that, of allowing anybody to start a company. Anybody can have control of this unique vehicle, which creates so much wealth, this this company structure. But now we've kind of gone so far away from those original ideals. So the, the, the company is basically a way to hide all of your um, income and assets. It's a way to um, go about the world without any responsibility and without having to kind of act in the same way that we act as citizens. So yeah, I, I agree that the prospect that um, the government will be able to pull the plug on on certain companies. You know, it should terrify people. But I suppose the point is that there needs to be some long stop um, beyond which bad conduct will not be accepted. And right now, um, if we allow companies to just get bigger and bigger, they effectively control the environment in which they operate. They control the regulations, they control the market, um, they can have incredible power over their suppliers, over their workers. So the alternative is pretty scary too. We just can't really see it for what it is. How hopeful are you that there will be a kind of a, a shift in general orientation towards corporate power? Because that question, even when, even the phrase corporate power is kind of identified as quite a lefty talking point, doesn't really have a lot of traction in the political centre. If you were a, a kind of Matt Ridley style Panglossian free markets guy, you'd say, look at look at what's happening now. Competition is producing, you know, marvellous free services that come to us only at the cost of watching a few adverts. You know, it's it, it's not going quite so badly. Are you hopeful that, that that this kind of that what you're talking about can gain traction? Well, I think that more and more people are pointing to the flaws in that argument. You know, I think that I hope that people can see through some of the bluster around, you know, national champions and things like that, because that tends to be, you know, where those arguments go, which is that, you know, in order to be competitive, we need these monopolies. But ultimately, you know, what does it, what good does it do an American citizen that Facebook is headquartered in America? Incidentally, uh, many of their assets are not located in America. They're located in the effective tax haven in Ireland. So, you know, it's not that kind of compact that you have a company that is in your country and it's employing your people and it's giving you products, but it's also um, paying its taxes. That compact is broken. We don't have that anymore. The biggest companies in the world, if you take a company like Apple, again, somewhere, a company that's locating its IP in Ireland. Apple, I think last week it was revealed that, um, or kind of calculated, that it is bigger in value than the entire of the rest of the FTSE 100 all added up. So you've got a company that's just way kind of separated from it, um, any sense of, of being regulated in, in any 
like common understanding of that word. And so I think that there are some companies that are so big and have such control um, over the way the world works that I think that that argument rings a little bit hollow. And if we think of another example, so in in agribusiness, um, you've got four companies that control the entire world's agribusiness um, inputs. So that's seeds, that's fertilizer, um, and, and all of the other inputs that go into farming. If we think about a, a problem like climate change, you very quickly get to those companies and you quickly get to their influence over monocultural agriculture and um, what crops that uh, farmers have to plant and how how they have all these kind of restrictions. For example, if Monsanto um, sells you its seeds, um, you aren't allowed to seed save, which is what farmers have been doing for hundreds of years. They save seeds from the some of their crops so that they can plant the next year. You're not allowed to do that. It's a breach of their IP. Um, if you happen to be an unlucky farmer that has planted in a neighboring field and your crops um, get kind of fertilized by the Monsanto seeds, you have to pay Monsanto a license, even though you, you didn't buy Monsanto seeds. I think that people are kind of starting to really explain some of these problems. And if, I, I mean, I think the first step is to actually seeing the problem for what it is just in closing so many of these companies are supranational it is not possible for an individual government even a government as big as the united states government for instance to take on facebook or to take on google it tends to it depend upon also supranational organizations and in europe we've tended to depend on the eu for market regulation britain is now out of the eu what what are your hopes of more effective regulation of, of uh, corporate power in the years to come? Well, I think that obviously we we will be in the UK kind of taking at it from a different um, perspective now that we're no longer in that kind of bigger European market or EU market. But I do think that, you know, some of my um, proposals that really focus on um, empowering stakeholders can get around some of those issues because stakeholders aren't beholden um, to the kind of jurisdictions that regulators are. Stakeholders can cooperate with each other freely around the world and kind of point out the problems that are happening in like small town America and how they link to the um, you know devastation of the local high street in the UK. We can make those connections and we can actually use our power as citizens to ensure that um, corporations are held to be more responsible. You know what you need? You need a hat that says make capitalism great again. <laughs> That's what would work. If only it was that simple. (laughs) Well, it's a start, I suppose. Michelle Ma, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really illuminating and provocative. Competition is Killing Us is out now in all good bookshops. Get it from hive.co.uk. They're little and they compete with Amazon. Listeners, thank you for listening. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with the main panel podcast on Wednesdays. You can get each podcast early and without adverts, plus our stylish Bunker merchandise as well, when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.